Welcome to the free podcast that I aim to entertain, inform and inspire you. If you are already following the podcast, thank you. If you are not, I would really appreciate you clicking that button. It's a small gesture from you, which is a massive gesture for us. Enjoy the episode. Alex Riley is a professional show-off and presenter of curiosity and intrigue. Alex has always been enamoured by the presence of cars in his life, whether those being car magazines or the arguments he had as a child in the playground. Cars have been an obsession since he can remember. If anything, this episode is a testament to the character of a man who has held his own in the crowded market of car presenters and hosts. A brief stint to Top Gear kickstarted his career, but now he's been on the likes of The One Show, ITV and many more. Alex has proved himself as more than just a car presenter. He is now a series of the new car years, a battle of wit and knowledge. Alex and his co-presenter, Vicky, talk shop and decide, thanks to a panel of judges, whose car is superior. So get ready to be entertained and inspired. Alex, welcome to the podcast. How are we? I'm very well, thank you. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. And a little question I'd start off with is what ignited your passion for cars? Well, I've always found it quite hard to answer this question because I can't remember a time when I didn't have a passion for cars. I can't I can't say there was this kind of moment of of realisation when I thought, oh, that's great, because I just, you know, like most people as a child was interested in cars and what they sounded like and what they looked like. And then, you know, I, I used to watch all these kind of TV series that had men usually who were uh, international men of mystery they were they had all the girls they had lots of money they looked stylish and they had fabulous cars and i found that impossibly glamorous and exciting bond films um also things like the persuaders anything with roger moore in it really is what i'm trying to say he he's been very much a role model for me over the years um, and it, I don't know, it's just that kind of idea of going to exotic locations, having a wonderful car, being, knowing how to drive, the sounds and, and the whole kind of, I don't know, I suppose, the, the glamour of it. And then you kind of become interested in what's around you and, you know, oh, this is the new this coming out and this is the new that coming out. And why is that better? And which one's the best in that kind of class? And I, I've always been a massive reader. So I started, you know, reading car magazines from quite an early age. Um, the first one I got was Street Machine, which was all about kind of the customising scene okay. in the 1970s. So it was basically people trying to make British cars look like 1950s American cars. That's that. That's kind of like what they were trying to do. <laughs> you know, they'd like do roof chops and Frenching and tunnelling. These are all terms that were used in the custom scene, like a George Barris type thing from the 50s and 60s, uh, you know, where he, he would make cars for like TV series and things, these yeah. with metal flake yeah. paint and the body dropped down onto the wheels. But these would be these would be Hillmans and Vauxhalls and Fords and things, and you know, and people would would put a Jag IRS in the back, independent rear suspension, and they'd, they'd, they'd I mean, it was amazing what they achieved really, because they would just be cutting things out and then welding new bodywork in, and then taking out the four cylinder engine and getting a Rover V8 in there. And I don't know, I just found it really quite exciting, and they'd be. There'd be illustrations of like, oh, you've got a, a Vauxhall Ventura. What you could do with it is this, and they'd, they'd make it look like a, a, a Pontiac or a, a Chevy Vega type thing, or a terrible car by the way, Chevy Vega. But it was, I don't know, it just seemed like really exciting and creative. And then there was another car magazine called Custom Car, 
which was similar, but it had topless women on the front cover. And you could buy that in a newsagent, you know, and I, don't, I mean, I can't remember ever going into a newsagent and buying this magazine, but I had several copies of it. So I'm, somehow I must have done it. And I remember backing the books at school. We used to have to back our books with, I used to back the books with some of the pictures from the centre okay. of this magazine. And although obviously not the actual topless pictures, but some really quite glamorous picture of, <laughs> you know, and this is when I was like from the age of 10 to about 12 when uh, yeah. this was happening. And uh, that was quite exciting. And that, that custom car had a, was quite funny. You know, they'd have like, um, I remember they did a series of like small ads in the back that were all just made up. And they were hilariously funny. You know, they were kind of, riffing off all the kind of standard cliches of things yeah. that people would put into adverts but they took it onto a whole new level it was really good but then when i was um 13 we were on holiday down south somewhere sussex i think it was and we uh, i went to a news agent looking for a magazine that was like a treat on holiday you know get a magazine to read while you're on holiday and um car magazine was on the shelf in, on the counter in this little corner shop and uh, I thought, oh, that looks quite interesting because it looked really sort of upmarket. The, the front cover was the picture of a, a mid-engined uh, AC that was designed by Gear, mm. uh, and it was it was going to be this new Ford badged supercar thing or AC badged for official Ford supercar. And I thought, oh, that's that that looks interesting. So I bought this magazine for seventy five p, and uh, which was a lot of money in those days, and. Um, it was just it was just a revelation really it was so well written you know the the quality of the writing and the and the and the people who were writing in it seemed to have sort of like quite interesting and you know they were clever and they you know they they took cars to italy they went to italy they went to to meet the chief engineer at de tomaso and they were friends okay, wow. with him and they went for lunch with him and they would they would get to borrow a prototype and they would drive it up in the hills with the test driver and then they would they would come back and have another meal and the cars were never ready by the way they would always arrive and they'd have sent telexes and phone calls and and they would arrive at the allotted time and then they would be like oh hello lovely to see you and they would say what do you what have you come for said, we arranged to have that and so they had, they would have to wait for two or three days while a car was made available it was just it was just like stories fantastic stories of of things and then you would have giant tests with lots of different cars in and they would you know meticulously go through the different categories but done in in a much more intelligent and interesting way than the other car magazines would do and it and i, I became sort of fascinated you know which was the best super mini and why that was better than that super mini and this was the you know the new golf or the new astra or the escort or whatever you know the the maestro which one was the best it was it was really important to me to know which was the best one and why and i, and I was also always i've always been a massive enthusiast of the whole kind of british leyland um saga shall we say as you should be <laughs> Well, it, it's one of the, the best soap operas um, going, in my view. And I, I was always like, you know, the, oh, the, the Metro or the, or the Maestro, the MG Metro or whatever, you know, and I was like, I really wanted, I was like rooting for it. You know, it, it was almost like being a football fan and they were my home team and I, I wanted them to do well. I actually, I actually wanted to work for Austin Rover. I, I made a couple of attempts yeah. to actually work for the Austin Rover Group. Before I did my A-levels, I think I wrote to them and asked them, 
you know, what qualifications would I need before if I was to get a job with you? And then I, I tried to get on the graduate sponsorship scheme, I think. And uh, and then eventually, a couple of years after I graduated, I, I managed to get an interview with them. And I went down to the oh, old wow. Canley plant and had this interview. And it's they decided I was, I mean, I was obviously extremely passionate about this whole thing. Maybe I was wrong for it because I was, I was so passionate I, you know, I couldn't sort of see any of the downsides, really. You know, for me, it was the world was wrong. Why were they rejecting these cars? Because they had so many merits. And I could show the evidence in the car magazines I yeah. was reading that yeah. they were really good cars. But And they said, oh, well, you know, it was between you and another guy. And the other guy had worked in a dealership for a summer. So he was, and it was coming up to like August, you know, for the, the plate change as was. Yeah. And they so and so they decided to go for this other lad. So it was it was. I'm feeling a little bit emotional talking about it now because I've yeah. It was like a, a moment where I realised that this was not going to happen. I was not going to work for Austin Rover or Rover Group or whatever it became. And I and I had to sort of like forget that dream. And it was it was quite a, a sad moment really. But I was you know I was obsessed with it. But I was also obsessed with reading about Italian cars and about. French cars and you know I, I'd, I'd have to get into arguments with people at school why a Citroen CX was a fantastic car when they were oh, a load of trouble you know they're always going wrong and always breaking down and this that and the other and I'd go, yeah but they're so much better than a Ford and I, I sort of really had it in for Ford Ford seemed to do very well with cars that were sort of not brilliant and Austin Rover seemed to not do very well, even though their cars tended to beat Fords in giant tests and had lots of clever thinking and interesting stuff about them. But people sort of went for Fords and it used to drive me crazy. Ford would like bring out a new wheel trim every three months or something. It'd be like, oh, wow, have you seen the Sierra's got these new... And it's like, yeah, but it, you know, the, the MG... MG, MG Montego beats it in all the all the giant tests and it beats the Cavalier SRI and all this but why are you wanting that instead it used to drive me crazy what's good is now that now we've got the internet and all these kind of car shows and things loads of people it turns out were just as excited and interested in Austin Rover and British Leyland as I was but I just didn't meet any of them when I was you know, a teenager and in my 20s <laughs> it's a shame because we could have had these conversations and actually been with like-minded people so yeah, exactly. My my tribe. But yeah, your old tribe. Well, it has a lot of downsides as well. Well, obviously, yeah. But um, yeah, th th things like that, it's great. Well, it's. I mean, it's sad you didn't get to live your dream, Pudos to Metro, but you had a, a, the um, that time with that. But when did you decide I'm going to give give a, give it a second go, go back into the, the car trade, or try your your flair at something else? Well, well, I mean. Sort of concurrent to all this stuff going on, I was also very interested in sort of performing, and I was, you know, I was in all the school plays, and uh, I was in, I did amateur dramatics, and I was also in the Crucible Youth Theatre in Sheffield, and you know, I always liked to make people laugh. Um, I was, you know, I was always wanted to perform and entertain people, and so I started, you know, I had to go down and get normal jobs and things. I was thinking, how the heck am I going to? make my way in in show business and performance and that sort of thing and, it, and you know I'd, I'd be at work and people would be going oh you're absolutely wasted here you're so funny so good why why don't you work in television and that you should you should be and I'd be like yeah great I used to obviously love it when people were saying these sorts of things to me but it became sort of increasingly kind of embarrassing 
as time went on, you know, I knew that I, I should be doing something like that, but I just had no idea how to get into it. You know, it was just like a, it became so, and in fact, I remember some bloke said to me, he said, you know what you should do? You should do Top Gear because you, you know, you're funny, you, 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 you know, really good. And you know, loads about cars. So Top Gear would be perfect for you. And I thought, yeah, I know. How do I get a job on from Top Gear? <laughs> so I used to, I used to get the Media Guardian, and if there was any presenter adverts in that, I used to send it in. But I'd, I'd sort of agonise over it for so long and spend so much time making making it crazy and daft, my application, with loads of colours and daft yeah. things on it. I'd probably miss the deadline by about, you know, three weeks or something. So anyway, to put a long story short, I was watching TV one night, watching Top Gear, and this they came on and said, would you like to come and... I work in leafy Birmingham. Would you like to work on the number one car show in the world? Blah, blah, blah. Just send us some uh, ideas and a CV and you might be the one who gets to work on top of you. And I thought, right, okay, this is it. This is, this Perfect. is it. I'm never going to get another chance as good as this. I'm going to make the best application possible. And if I get an interview, I know I am going to get the job. So I kind of wrote some ideas. They wanted three ideas totally focused my CV on all the things that I thought they would want, came up with ideas that were sort of car magazine or yeah. <laughs> type ideas with a, with the odd bit of something else attached to them. I sent it all in and absolutely nothing happened. It was just complete tumbleweed. Weeks were going by, nothing was happening. Checking the post every day. I rang them up and I said, hello, I applied for that job. Any any news on that? Oh, yeah, we've got like about a massive pile of applications on the boss's desk and we just, we're just waiting to get round to looking at them. So what, I did, what at the time I didn't realise was the Top Gear, the motoring unit at Birmingham, it was sort of a little bit dysfunctional. <laughs> it, was, it, wasn't, it wasn't the most sort of... Um, Oh, well, professional, I don't know if that's the right word, but it was it was kind of like a little bit of the BBC that nobody really paid any attention to. Ah. And so they kind of did their own thing. And uh, it wasn't sort of um, a well-oiled machine, shall we say. So, And then I'd be on holiday, you know, and, and ringing my mum, see if I'd got any post. And uh, actually, I, lived, I didn't live at home, but I think she went around to my flat occasionally to, you know, I left home, flipping out. You know, I was knocking on a bit. I was getting, getting on for 30. So... Um, Anyway, she got an envelope for the BBC. It was really thin. And, you know, when you get, a, if you don't get the job, it's usually thin. And if you do get the job, it's usually thick with all sorts of information in it. So she said, do you want me to? I was in Turkey in a, in a market square in a phone booth. We had phone booths in those days, guys. That was the only way of, and when you went on holiday, you couldn't be in constant contact with everybody at home. That was one of the joys of being on holiday. They were cut off from the outside world for a week or a fortnight. And you were on an adventure that you were going to tell everybody about when you got back rather than now, where everybody knows exactly what you've done every single day and they're bored already before you get back. Anyway, she opened the envelope and it said, oh, thank you for, for your uh, application. We, uh, we, haven't, we haven't looked at it yet. We'll let you know in the future. So it was like, oh, gosh. Anyway, eventually I got an interview. And for the interview, I, took, I made another seven ideas, handed yeah. it out to all the people that had several copies of it and said, oh, by the way, so that I'd done 10 ideas. I was, I was erudite and charming and blah, 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 blah. And uh, they offered me the job. And so I started um, as a researcher on Top Gear in BBC Birmingham. And that kind of grew into sort of, that's a great story, by the way. I love that. It's, it's, it's full of um, ups and downs. But so you've taken, you've taken the Top Gear job on and you've, what was that like working for Top Gear? How did, how did that go? Well, I mean, it, 
you know, I'd been working, before I worked at Top Gear, I'd been working in the world of European funding. And before that, I'd been working in the world of uh, poster sales at universities. Now, these are not the best groundings for working as a researcher in television. It was a bit of a shock, to be honest, especially when I realised I didn't have a desk, let alone a computer, to work at. It was almost like as if nobody had really expected anybody to turn up for these jobs. And uh, nobody kind of explained to you how anything worked or how to do anything. You know, it was there was no sort of induction or so it was it was really quite difficult. I'd had to sort of um, I'd got a, like a lodger in at my flat in Sheffield, but that wasn't making much money. And I was having to li- like live in digs in Birmingham during the week. And then I go back to my flat at the weekend. So I was paying a mortgage. And I was paying uh, some rent on digs and I'd taken a significant pay cut to follow my dream. Wow. And I was thinking, oh, my goodness, I spent my whole my whole life sort of dreaming of working in TV and doing all this. And I'm not really enjoying it. it it's a nightmare. I had no money at all. And it was, you know, it was a real struggle for the first year, probably. But anyway, it started to get better and uh, I started to get to know people. And then I, you know, managed to get, I ended up having to sell my flat, unfortunately. That's a whole different story about how I got out of the property market just at the point where it went crazy through the roof and then spent 10 years trying to get back into it. But anyway. There we go. Yeah. I mean, it was, I mean, can you imagine working on, on a car program, suddenly having kind of access to, you know, yeah. cars and car and the people who you'd admired. I mean, I, I worked on a program called The Cars the Star, and we did the McLaren F1. And I got wow. to interview Gordon Murray, Peter Stevens, Ron Dennis, Mansoor OJ, you know, the people who had created the McLaren F1. Yeah. And and we and at the at one of the shoots we did, we we had an, a Jaguar XJ220 and a Ferrari F40. And a, and the guy, the delivery driver who dropped off the Ferrari F40 said, do you want to have a go in it? I went, yeah. Yeah, all right then. Yes, please. <laughs> he said, here, here you go. You know, I got jumped in, drove it up and down the airfield a couple of times, and then there was like, what's that terrible noise? Can you stop? Whatever that is. You know, they were filming elsewhere and couldn't do it. But, you know, this this was just happening, and I was meeting my heroes and, and you know, get – my whole life, I dreamt of going to the motor show on press day. Yeah. Because, you know, you got, there was celebrities and there was, you know, there's not many people there. And and I was there working on the motor show and, yeah, oh, they knew this, knew that. And I'd write a script about this, the VX220 or something like that. And we'd go and film it. And then Leslie Phillips, the famous actor, we got him on. And I was doing stuff with Leslie. I was hanging out with Leslie Phillips and asking him questions about cars and about James Robertson Justice, who had a Mercedes 300S. Sell going, so it you know it, it was the most wonderful thing, and also of course because I was a massive fan of like Austin Rover and the Rover Group and MG Rover, I became the sort of unofficial kind of researcher for all those kind of stories. So I got to you know the MGF Trophy. I went and went to Myra to the wind tunnel where we yeah. met. Um, engineers and peter stevens had done the styling and then and then i did the launch of the mgz cars and wow. uh you know all the, and driving them on track and meeting the engineers and 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 all that so you know i was obviously keen to sort of give them give them the recognition that they deserved and yeah. obviously and then when when it all went pear-shaped it was kind of a quite a strange experience for me because i'd spent so many years being a fan, an apologist, uh, an enthusiast for this company that finally failed. 
that being interested in cars was a bit like being a football fan, but your the club you supported had gone out of business. Yeah. So it was a it was kind of it was a weird feeling. I was still loved cars and was fascinated by them, but every time I'd got an issue of Car Magazine, I'd be flicking through it to see if there's any stories about Austin Rover or Rover Group or yeah. anything like that, or news or reviews or whatever, you know. And suddenly it was just all the other companies were there, not not the one that I was really rooting for. So it was kind of a quite a strange feeling for a couple of years, really. But I mean, it must have been great though, because all these conversations you were having as a child about this group, you got you got to voice. You got to have those conversations in a in a publication that that was quite big at the time, but it's just a it's a shame that it's it's come away from that and you've now you've now gone on to Top Gear and it's been taken away from you. Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I was still working on on the program, still doing interesting things, and still, yeah. you know, we did I did another Cars the Star on the Rolls Royce Silver Shadow, and you know, we I organised for like Mickey Most and Max By. I had a brilliant conversation with Max Bygrave, kids. One for the dads. Uh, but, you know, all the, I was doing, you know, obviously MG Rover going going bust was much more of a problem for all the people who worked there than it was for me. It wasn't, a, yeah. you know, I didn't lose anything apart from, the you know, the, who I was rooting for. And I was working on Top Gear, which was absolutely fascinating. Then I worked on Top Gear GTI, which was a kind of spin-off that worked, uh, that was about, it was like a, for digital stations and it filmed its own stuff. And so I was... I did a bit of presenting for that. And also, I also actually made my presenting debut on Top Gear. What a place to do it. Well, exactly. I did the, I did my first item um, and it went out on the Wednesday night or the Thursday night. And the next morning, I'm like walking into work. I'm thinking, I'm going to get mobbed here. <laughs> sort of had this, this idea that, you know, I'd be people would recognise me in the street from doing one item on yeah. Top Gear the night before. And nobody, not a single person, realised it was me. So I realised then that there's a bit more to it than just, just doing one just, item. Just one I did three yeah. items on Top Gear, which I re- researched and wrote and did everything on for myself. And it was, you know, it was what an amazing opportunity. It's take, when I'd first got there, the bloke who was in charge had sort of said, oh, yeah, we'll have to get you on screen doing some presenting and stuff like that. And then Jeremy Clarkson left. And suddenly, whereas the BBC had ignored Top Gear for many years, they suddenly realised they had this car programme without its big star. And so everything was under scrutiny and suddenly the whole world pivoted and it was on borrowed time, basically. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I didn't get the chance then, but I got the chance two years later or something like that. And, um, yeah, that was fantastic. So, you know, I was able to put together a show. I have some great news. I'm incredibly excited to announce this podcast has its first sponsor, Automobilist. Now, Automobilist are all about creative thinking and solution-finding ideas, ideas that I like to champion myself. Now, on top of this, they are some of the industry's most knowledgeable automotive and motorsport minds. They create a high-quality product that looks great in garages, offices, and rooms of all types. They are giving one lucky listener of this podcast a chance to win a copy of their limited-edition Formula 1 80s decade posters. Now, I know what you're thinking, but I've not been told what to say. I generally love the posters, they look superb, plus they are so collectible. Still, if you are like me and obsessed with the McLaren, this is extra exciting because the poster is of the McLaren MP4-4 car. The McLaren MP4-4 is statistically the most successful Formula 1 car ever having triumphed in 15 out of 16 Grand Prix held in 1988. It's a proud and unbelievable moment for me and the podcast. I wish I could be in the chance to win with the poster myself. Now, 
listen carefully because these are super easy steps that will guarantee you the chance to be entered. To enter, follow us at We Are Ignition. That's We, the letter R, Ignition, and Automobilist at I Am Automobilist on Instagram and comment the word win on our post to be in the chance. Again, a huge thank you to Lucy and everyone at Automobilist for helping set this up and sponsoring the podcast. The giveaway starts Friday, August the 5th and ends 11.59pm on August the 31st. The winner will be announced Monday, September 5th. This giveaway is not sponsored or endorsed by Instagram or Spotify and has nothing to do with the platforms. All rules and regulations will be on the website and further information is in the show notes below. Good luck. And now, back to the episode. I mean, having, having, having loved and do love the stuff that you do, Currently, I wanted to ask you around you developing your own presenting style and how you came to to be the, the funny, sort of interesting, eccentric guy on TV that we all know. Well, uh, I, th- I think it took me quite a long time to sort of work out what I was supposed to do because, you know, you obviously when you start presenting, you, you've watched a lot of television. You've watched a lot of television presenters. And, you know, a lot of television presenters uh, come across as quite sort of like phony and... Uh, very uh, cheesy and uh you know and i was i was at great pains not to be like that mm. because it always sounded a bit like alan partridge you know that kind of alan partridge style of presenting where they're kind of only interested in themselves and and being sort of they, you know they're not actually like a human being and there's still presenters around like that today <laughs> so it always felt a bit like i was pretending to be a tv presenter when i first started you know i was kind of I was kind of, it's, I'd be saying these pieces to camera. Also, in the first, in, even though I'd written my own pieces to camera in the in those first presenting jobs, I used to, I used to find it quite nerve-wracking. And I remember being in the car, getting to a shoot, and, and sort of like and liking the fact that it took a long time for the crew and everything to get all the stuff ready and that, because it meant it, I didn't have to start doing it for a, a bit longer. And, yeah. and, and then, you know, everybody was like relying on me to do this thing and, and I wasn't really very sure of it. So it was, it was quite hard, but I don't know. I mean, I think with, with most things, it's like, you know, doing it is the best way to learn how to do it and how not to do it and to think about what you've done and how you come across. And I mean, I'm all, even to this day, I am much better sort of improvising in the moment rather than following a script. You know, I, uh, I'm i quite good at being... I mean, when I did my documentaries, my uh, BBC Three documentaries, even though I knew what we were trying to get out of a scene, yeah, all the dialogue in that would be would be what happened in the moment. So I would be just responding to the situation and if I wanted to... And they kept the camera rolling. What What's difficult for me sometimes is that I do a lot of good stuff but because it's not in the script, it gets cut or it's sort of like not, you know, there's not the room to add in the ad libs and the fun bits because it's sort of heavily formatted show. Um, on the car years with Vicky, obviously the, the bits I'm doing in the car are all fully scripted. But what's great is the bits at the end where we have the arguments, you know, that's not scripted. That's yeah. not that's not planned. It's just like, right, for the next five minutes, we're going to sort of, have an argument about why our car should win and why the other car is rubbish compared to mine. Yeah. But it's quite, I mean, without blowing our own trumpet, I think we do this better than anybody else does on television because a lot of these, a lot of these kind of situations are scripted. Yeah. That's why sometimes bants on TV feels quite lame because it is scripted. And, and 
also it kind of can be quite puerile, you know. I mean, it's like, oh, your car's rubbish because it is not to 60 time is one tenth of a second slower than mine. Ha 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 ha. And this is blokes in their 40s and 50s pretending that they're actually nine and 10 or, or 12 and 13. And, and it's like, come on, lads, you know, you are, you're an adult. This is not, you know, you don't really mean that. You know that that doesn't really matter. But you've got this sort of daft joke that you've got to do. So what's great about me and Vicky is we just flip in, you know, in this new series that is coming out in August, it's it's brilliant because they've just let they just let us talk, they just let it run, and then they've just edited it a bit. So it's totally spontaneous. There's one bit where a car drives through the front of shot, and I make some ad lib and that, and it, you know, it's daft. And it, but it just works. Whereas, yeah. oh no, we, cut, cut, we've got to stick to the script. No, we, it's not scripted. But we, you know, we we we're still respectful of one another. We're not yeah. slagging each other off. But we're we're just sort of like you know having a life like you would with your mates, but doing it you know where on TV where you can enjoy it. So I'm much happier doing that kind of thing than I am doing scripted things. But the more you practice doing the scripted thing, I mean, I did about probably 150 items for the one show yeah. on 150 different subjects of from, you know, from the sublime to the ridiculous and having to do that and turn it around in a day over and over again is fantastic sort of training and practice. Sometimes when you're presenting, you know, you do, you do a presenting job, then you don't do another presenting job for six months or whatever. And you, you've got to get back into the groove of it. So doing the one show and doing lots of items very quickly, it's very good for sort of knowing how to do a piece to camera, make it sound genuine, even though it is scripted and, and how to put sort of put it into your own words. Um, so it took me, it took quite a long time to get to that. I was always good at doing the funny stuff and the improvised stuff and the daft stuff. The scripted stuff took me longer to to get into, really. Yeah, and do you still find that now that that sort of, I mean, you described it as sort of an imposter syndrome in front of the camera, like you shouldn't be, do you still get that now? Or is that kind of, that? does that go away with, with experience? No, I think I think I feel I, I feel like I am now. I I, do, I should be doing that. I should be yeah. doing presenting. <laughs> I should be uh, in front of an audience or in front of a camera. But yeah, it, I always wanted to to come across as authentic. And but and I mean, the, one of the things about presenting is they you know they say you know be yourself, but just you you're sort of a bigger version of yourself. Yeah. Well, it, it's when somebody says be yourself. I mean, I used to think, well, I mean, what what does that actually mean? I mean, what if what if myself isn't really that interesting, or I'm a bit embarrassing? And you know, you've you've got your insecurities about this, that, and the other, or the way you look, or the way you sound, or the things you have done, or the things that you haven't done. And it's quite hard to sort of leave that behind and think, you know, because also when you first start presenting, really. They're doing you a favour. I mean, why should they give you a presenting job? You know, that everybody wants to be a presenter. Why should you get it? You know, yeah, so you're true. also sort of thinking, oh, gosh, you know, what if they don't like it? If it goes wrong, I've had it. You know, that's it. It's all over. So it's uh, but now I have sufficient experience to feel like, yes, I can I can do the job and I can do it well. And, you know, please give me another job. At the end of it, yeah, I think. Well, I don't think we'll ever stop because <laughs> it looks like you've. Uh, the car is. I mean, it's is coming out. It's coming out with the 9th of August, isn't it? So that's right. IT, yeah, ITV4. So look out for that. Yes, ITV4 out. series three. And I think the greatest series. Yeah, we filmed the whole thing in Ireland. 
Brilliant. Um, and it, so it looks spectacular. And we've just got, you know, the music, the costumes, the, because, we're, you know, when you've been doing it, we've done three series now. This is the third yeah. series. You sort, of, you sort of get into the groove of it a lot quicker and think about, oh, what did I do in series two? You know, I'd like to really sort of push this bit a bit more and, and get this. And like writing the scripts, you know, I'm thinking, okay, that it, I'm not going to be able to put that information in, but this is this is the really good stuff that I need to get in. And, you know, you, you're more confident in the way that you can express that in the script and how you can do it in the, in the actual, um, you know, the pieces to camera and the actual way you film it. So it's, it's you know, it's, I think, the best series so far. That's I would say that, wouldn't I? Yeah, why not? But it, it, <laughs> it is. It, it, oh, I'm saying that though. I haven't, I haven't seen it all. I've just seen a, seen a few bits and did the voiceover on it. And so I saw a few more bits and, but yeah, some of the, some of the bants, the bants is looking really good. And we've got some amazing cars. I mean, Jaguar XJ220. Oh, lovely. Um, the BMW 600 car that probably nobody's ever heard of, but is very interesting in the story. And the story of BMW after the war is absolutely fascinating. They basically didn't, they almost didn't even exist in 1945. They had the one factory had been destroyed. The others were in Eastern Europe, controlled by the Russians. The um, the, the Allies confiscated all their machinery. Lovely. <laughs> <They literally, laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's quite hard to make cars, and they weren't. They didn't even have permission to uh, to make cars, or let alone motorbikes. You know, they didn't have permission to make motorbikes even, let alone cars. So it took a while, and then when they did finally start making cars. Uh, it all it didn't go very well, and they nearly went bust. And the Roots Group nearly took them over. Okay. But they did, they weren't interested in the company. They just wanted the dealers in Europe. That's all they were interested in. They would have just got rid of the name BMW, and just turned them into Roots Group Hillman dealers. Wow! There we go. <laughs> Some BMW dealers. Yeah. So you know, I think we should be grateful that um, that didn't happen. And that BMW were able to get back into making cars, and after many false starts and near misses, they finally um, found the formula for their survival. But it's a great story, you know. It's it's that's what's great about this show is we're telling a brilliant story, and and then against that, we're telling the story of the Fiat 500. You know, the Nuovo 500 yeah. from you know, 1957. What a year! Just it was what the people year, start for Italy, was it? I know. I wouldn't know. I... <laughs> Well, you will when you watch. I will. I will. That's great because I mean, I, you know, I didn't know the story of the BMW 600 until I, you know, before we start filming, I come up with a massive list of all the years, yeah, where car and what cars were launched in all these years. And every series we use different years. Eventually, we'll have to start duplicating years, obviously, but. You know, and then and then I sit down with the producer and he goes, oh, yeah, that'd be good. And I was thinking, well, the BMW 600, nobody's ever heard of that. We can't put that up against. And, the, you know, the Fiat 500 is a, is an icon of post-war Italy. And anyway, oh, no, that'd be great. Two little tiny bubbly cars that will just, and we can film that in a city and it'll be, and it, and it, it was so absolutely spot on. So, yeah, and I, we got to use Sterling Moss's BMW 600. Oh, wow. He was a big fan of little cars, and uh, he bought one in the, I think it was probably in the late 60s, but it, by which time it was out of production. And I think he taught his son to drive in it. So it had just been restored, so we uh, we were the first people to to use it. Oh, you're going to love this series. I, I can't wait. It's, 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 I guess it's just like the eye setters of, the, of that year, isn't it, as well? The sort of, the, the micro-bubble cars. 
where everything yeah. is. Well, BMW ma- made the um, IZ yeah, under course. license and slightly improved it and then licensed their design to Sweden and Britain and possibly one other country. Uh, but then they wanted to, but, you know, a small car equals tiny profits. And also, you know, it was the, it was a car for slightly earlier in the 50s because people started to get richer and suddenly bubble cars were, well, you know, I, I can afford a car now. I want to, I'm going to get a little NSU 600 or a, a Fiat 600 or whatever. And and so they were, they thought, I know, we'll we'll take the bubble car, but we'll make it bigger. We'll We'll put a back seat in there. We'll have another door for people to get out. It, it'll be um, have a bigger engine and it'll have a proper four-speed manual gearbox on the floor and it'll be, you know, be, anyway, you'll have to, you'll have to watch the uh, program nice. to see how it all ends up. But uh, it's, uh, it looks great. It's still got the door that opens at the front, you know, oh, wow. like yeah. a fridge. Um, and the, well, well, it was the way, I, the reason I say fridge was because Ezo, who, who made the bubble car mm. originally, also made fridges. There we go. So they they designed a small car around the design of a fridge. Recycled the handles and opened the door so it's easier to get in. Exactly, exactly. So they stick to what you know. That's what I say. And speaking of what you know, do you do you I mean, do you prefer the writing part of presenting? Do you prefer the telling the story? What is it for you that you when you're presenting is, is the best sort of bits of it, or do you like the pieces of camera and stuff like that more? My favourite bit of the of the car years is the uh, is the banter with Vicky. I just love mm bantering with her i I love love, basically is for me it's kind of like everything i like to do but done for money so i love reading about cars so i have eight new cars that i need to find all out about so i buy some books and i go through old magazines i've got every car magazine from about 90 car magazine from about 1965 so i can read contemporary road tests of most cars in that period and um, and I just have to research and really get into it. And then I, I enjoy the writing stuff and making it, you know, rattle along well and putting a few little funny bits in and, and things like that. And then I, en- I enjoy the filming side of it. And I love the, you know, we do the, the pieces to camera at the beginning where I'm having a bit of daft business with Vicky, which is great. I love dressing up in vintage costumes. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I mean, what what's not to like? I like, you know, going away with the boys for and Vicky um, for a couple of weeks to, to film it and everything, you know, and I just, I just like the whole creative process, the performing, the writing and, you know, finally getting to drive amazing cars. Yeah. It's an amazing privilege to do that. And I'm so grateful to the people who lend us their cars because, you know, without them, we haven't got a show. No, exactly. And I mean, going forward is, I mean, I, I like to ask people that are presenters and stuff, if you could make your ideal sort of TV show, if you could, from the ground up, design a, a brand new TV show. What, what would you do? Would you would you keep it the same sort of format, or would you go completely nuts with it? Well, I mean, they always ask you these sorts of questions when you're in uh, when you're in meetings with production companies and channels and things like that. And that usually means that they've not they haven't got anything in mind for you. And what I'm thinking in my head is, I just want to work. I just want a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> just want to get paid. I just want to get paid. I've got mortgage. I've got kids. I've got a lot of commitments, and I just need a certain amount of work every year. So stop asking me that. Come to me with some brilliant ideas, and I'll do all of them and make them an amazing program, and you'll get all the credit for it. So come on. But I don't know. I mean, I'd like I, I, some sort of like light entertainment spectacular with uh, do a bit of singing, do a, bit, do a few <laughs> sketches, 
uh, do a big car element where I have to, you know, travel across a continent in some amazing car. I don't know. It's just wish fulfillment. I Sometimes when I'm trying to develop ideas for programs, I think, well, what do I want to do? I, travel. Okay, I have to go to a different country every week and drive lots of great cars with top fashion models. There you go. That's me ideal show. There we are. <laughs> That's an easy. <laughs> That's what I'm talking about. I also enjoy the live performance. I like uh, I like getting out there and doing car shows and uh, you know live events. On I did a one of my documentary series. I um, I turned the secrets of the super brands, which was all oh, yeah. about yeah. you know getting inside people's brains and understanding why certain brands have been so massively successful and how they play on our emotions. Um, the most successful brands, and so and that company phoned me out of the blue and they wanted to do this big event in front of 1500 people and they said oh can you do a talk about the series and I had to kind of I mean when he first said it I thought oh my gosh how am I going to do that that sounds terrifying and I, that, I've got three one-hour programs I'm going to turn it into a one-hour talk with visual aids and stuff anyway they helped me do all the visual aids and everything and I did this talk and it was a huge success and then that company yeah. paid for me to do it in Scandinavia and all these other and and then another company a bloke who saw it he got me to do it in Antwerp and Rotterdam and then somebody else saw it and I did it in Vienna and London and and it was just like so, so you know a live audience and sort of creating that with the, with the visuals and the video clips and putting ad libs in and and all sorts you know it, that was great so I do also enjoy the the live performance element of it I'm a show off that's what I'm saying but. I, a show off with content, not just look at me, look at look. I like to have permission to do it. And the permission comes from having something interesting or, yeah. you know, valid to present and to put across. So but what was the question? <laughs> <laughs> I think it was somewhere along the your ideal car show, but I think that, that's answered it perfectly. What I do like is I think, um, you know, we look at one thing that's interesting about the car years is that we go back to the, the day these cars were created. Now, you know, that puts things in a very different context. You know, everybody knows about E-Type Jags, you know, mm -hmm. the E-Type Jag, the Mini, da, 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 da. there's all these kind of iconic classic cars. But actually, you know, if you go back to 1961, what if you'd got the money to buy an E-Type, what were the other cars that you could have bought at the time? You know, sure. what was the economy like? What was, you know, what was the equivalent to that, you know, and suddenly, you know, I remember reading a few years ago, well, a lot, 30 years ago, probably about, you know, they were comparing the Aston Martin DB5 against a, against a, um, an E-type Jag. And they were both 15,000 pounds to buy in 1988 or whatever it was. And of course, now that, you know, you, you could, you know, one DB5 costs the same as three or four absolutely incredible flat four E-types pretty much. Yeah. So, it's just kind of like, you know, strip away. And everybody thinks that the G Golf GTI is the only hot hatch that's ever been made, you know, and that it was the greatest hot hatch ever. And nobody had invented sporty versions of family cars until the Golf GTI, which is ludicrous. So it's quite nice to go back to a, a specific year yeah. and say, yeah, well, this is the context and this is what they did and why they did it. And it was a bit of a risk. And it failed or it was a bit of a risk, but it paid off. Or, you know, the reason they did this, the company, the previous car had been a disaster and they'd lost so much money. It was like, you know, do or die. Yeah. They had to do this. And that that becomes so much more interesting. It's like when you look at a, a giant test from a car magazine from 1971. 
And you think, oh, my goodness, look at that. Those three cars. I would have never thought of those three cars as being sort of contemporaries or, you know, it's vying for the same kind of buyer. Comparison, yeah. Yeah, but because now it's just like, oh, we know about that car and we don't know about that car. We, oh, that car's really valuable and that one's really cheap. But at one time they were assessed on each other's merits together. And I just find that kind of thing quite fascinating. It is, and, it is, that's, yeah. and the car is, is, you know, what we do for that. In fact, years ago, I came up with an idea of like doing a sort of a giant test where you did the MGB against a, a TR4 or a, a Fiat 124 Spider or whatever. And, uh, and they said, oh, yeah, that would never work. But anyway, we've, we've, we've kind of got there sort of with the car years. Yeah, I mean, it does. It does sound very much like you've taken what you were reading as a kid, and you've you've made it your career. You've read those magazines, and you've you've changed them into real life, sort of, and you get to have fun with it as well. Yeah, no, I mean, I can't complain on that on that front because um, you know, I it's quite nice. I mean, you know, obviously, I'm married, and uh, I've got a lot of car magazines and a lot of car books, and there's a lot of shelf space that and attic space that are taken up by them. But now I can say, well. I need them for work. This yes. is important research material. So, you know, this is, it's my livelihood. You've got an archive you've carried around with you. It is an archive, isn't it? Yeah. The Alex Riley archive, which I will obviously donate on, on my death to uh, somebody who can make, you know, to possibly set up a museum. Yeah, give it to the Beaulieu or something like that, and then we'll, <laughs> they'll take it and run with it. They've probably got it all. Yeah, true. Yes. No, no, it's great. I mean, you know, I love cars and I love, you know, I, I, and sometimes, you know, I've, do, I've made television about stuff that I wasn't massively passionate about. Um, and, you know, you, but you, you're a professional and you're doing a job and you're making, trying to find what's interesting. I think, I think to be a good presenter, you have got to be curious and interested in a, in a broad range of things. And the documentaries were great because I love the idea of like going on a journey. I, I need to find out why transport in this country is a nightmare. And so I did the, you know, this mischief documentary about transport and getting revenge on mm. the people who'd messed it all up and all that. So that, you know, it's quite interesting to do that sort of thing and to, and to you know, why, why is that brand so successful and that one isn't? Well, let's, let's go and find out. Let's, let's work it out and then see what's happening in people's brains. You know, that sort of stuff is, is fascinating. Um, and you know, it would be boring to just do cars all the time. You know, it's sort of like, well, that's, you've kind of backed yourself into a corner and it's quite nice to do, you know, other kinds of TV as well, because, you know, I like people, I'm interested in people yeah. and hearing people's stories and, and finding out other stuff, but you know, our cars are the, the thing that I'm passionate about. So it's wonderful to be able to make a car show. I'd like to make more, many more car shows. I think it's great you haven't just put yourself in a box. You haven't labelled yourself as one thing, and that's brilliant. I think the, the whole curiosity thing is what probably has driven you on to, excuse the pun, um, <laughs> to do more than just to just this the car is and stuff. Because that the super brands thing that now fascinates me. I'll have to give a look at that one. We put people in MRI scanners and show look at literally with the physical things that are happening inside the brain when they're bombarded with messaging about different kinds of brands and um the results are very interesting harry <laughs> very interesting indeed uh, yeah it's brilliant this is it's the sort of stuff i'm into outside of the podcast is sort of this um i'm gonna say i'm gonna call it psychology but i'm not smart enough to call it psychology so i just the way things work in the head is um is what mm -hmm. i'm interested in that but, sounds yeah. like psychology yeah probably somewhere i don't have a fancy degree though so can't plaster anyway. Yeah. 
Um, you should, you've got a brain now. You've got your own brain. Yeah, that that kind of works on on, on some days. So yeah exactly so um why not yeah alex there is there are some questions i sort of like to end the podcast with and the first one of those being if you had any budget any there's no restrictions what three cars would you have okay Ali, let me give you a tip uh in doing podcasts like this maybe send uh send this question through before the podcast so the person can have a little bit of time to consider this once in a lifetime opportunity <laughs> However, uh, i like it on the ball it's better <laughs> well there's a car that I'm really quite excited about. It, it, I'm, I'm a big fan of the Citroen SM, the okay. Citroen Maserati engine Citroen. And um, there's a company in, in France called SM2, I think it's called. And they do this, I hesitate to call it a resto mod because it, I, I think it, it conjures up lots of negative images to me of uh, American muscle cars with 25-inch wheels on them and things like that. So, But anyway, they take the, the SM and sensitively modify it they take a lot of weight out of it at the front beyond the engine. The engine sits entirely behind the front wheel line and they take okay, a lot wow. of that weight from there, about 150 kilos or, or over the whole car, but a lot of it from in front of the front wheels. There, there's a couple of uh, reliability problems that uh, especially con concerning uh, the air conditioning system and the engine, the air conditioning system, if it seizes, destroys the engine. So there's a, there's a few mods like that. They tidy away a lot of the pipes into the inner wings and they retrim the interior to an extremely high standard with this beautiful toffee-coloured leather in the, in the demo car. Uh, the, the engine is, is rebuilt and has modern um, engine management on it. it, produces about 30 more horsepower. Um, but it's not, you know, it's not like highly, you know, it's, it's, this is a GT car. So it's, yeah. it's got more performance, um it's quieter it's just it's just kind of like optimized and they they've even made their own uh polycarbonate wheels and the 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 wheels on the original citroen sm you could get a carbon fiber reinforced plastic wheel back in 1970 this is wow. amazing sort of science fiction stuff even a set of those wheels now is thousands of pounds but they're probably you probably shouldn't be using 50 year old wheels anyway <laughs> that are made of plastic Anyway, they make a bigger wheel that's a slightly bigger, so you can use modern Michelin tires on it. And it's just, and, and they they can hide a, a high-end sound system in it and everything. You know, and it's, it's just a beautiful car. And it, it's just, uh, uh, in the second series of the car years, I drove an SM. And I've, I've driven one in another car show I did years ago. And I just absolutely love them. They, they, the way they drive and the way they make you feel is it's like no other car. So to have yeah. one that's effectively like a brand new car with a few very sensitive modifications just to make it more usable and reliable, that for me would be probably the first car I would buy if I had um, a lot of money to spend on a car. And you want two more? That's two more. I mean, you can could, you could have three of those if you want. <laughs> right. Well, different colours. Now, that would be excessive. That would be silly. Um, I would have... I don't know. I... Money no object. I, I mean, I, I do like a Ferrari 308 GT4. Not a very expensive car, really, in the grand scheme of things. They are, I love the look of them. I, what, what I would like to do is I would like to build my own car. That is really what I would like to do. Yeah. I would like yeah. to possibly go to Gordon Murray, who does these uh, iStream chassis. He's got a sports car chassis. I'd, I'd probably have it with, as a possibly as a 2 plus 2, perhaps. I, I do like the idea of a GT car. 
and I would design it with the help of a professional designer, and we would I would make it to my perfect specification. It would be refined. It would be a beautifully direct steering. It would it would have a good ride. It would have it would rev really freely up to mm. beyond seven thousand revs, but it would it would have sufficient mid range torque to mean that you didn't have to work too hard to extract the performance. And it would look it would look like the kind of car that Roger Moore would drive, because. And I would wear clothes that look like Roger Moore, really, and drive it all the time if money was no object. Brilliant. So you've got an SM2, you've got a Roger Moore car, and if you had to go for a third, I mean, you can have a track car, you can have a you can have a micro car if you really want. I would like, and well, I do like, I do like, you know, like a 1950s sort of sports racing car. Uh, there's like a Dino 246 or a, that kind of like Jaguar D-type sort of thing. Which oh, okay. is, where it's light, um, it's got a, but it, but it's kind of, or like a, you know, a, a Maserati uh, 450 or something like that. That kind of look, open cockpit, but but sort of still recognisable as a kind of road car. But you know, on a on a lovely night, sunny day, it's just the kind of car to go on a blast. And you've got all the sound sights and sounds and smells, and you've got the this wonderful machine with it exposed to the elements but and and you're in in your mind you're you know you're doing the millimilia or something like that that's that that kind of car um maybe not a mercedes 300 slr because i think that's just a, not quite pretty enough maybe maybe an aston dbr one okay. 300 yeah. le mans winning style or maybe just one to my own design that's uh very much of that type perhaps yes maybe i could and you might have just asked, you might have just answered the second question, but if you um again any track any road in the world where would you go and what would you take? Well, I th- I, I, I'm very keen on the idea of of sort of uh, travelling through Europe's off uh, through Europe's through Europe uh, off the autostrada. Fantastic scenery, lightly traffic roads, stopping every now and again to. Uh, have a wonderful lunch at some beautiful chateau overlooking the river or something, you know, that kind of idea. Touring perhaps me and the the wife, uh, just drive, you know, some kind of open top sports car that has plenty of luggage space for, um, you know, a couple of weeks away, Um, possibly a TR8, I don't know. Um, That sort of thing, I don't know. I mean, what I really would like to do, there's, there's there's a course... Uh, for historic races where they drive Ford Capris and they learn how to drive um, on track. And I would like to do that course because I like the idea okay. of a, a kind of, a, you know, 70s car driving that round um, a track or just, you know, on the on the public highway, but mm. just sort of learning how to really get the most out of it from people who, who race historic cars. And uh, so that you could really, you know, a bit of, I'm not sure I'd be very good as a racing driver, I'll be honest with you. I'm not sure I've got the uh, the raw talent, but uh, I would like to. I would like to do the racing driver's course, yeah. Because um, just to just to have a, a, an increased level of skill would really improve the experience. I think of any any driving would be just better, and just the idea of of getting to drive some sort of Capri three liter around the track and that and learn how to properly control it would be wonderful yeah and then when you're doing a car show you can skid it a bit better and know what you're doing so well it's not the kind of uh show for skidding is it i mean you know it's hooliganism is there's no place for that in the car years it's about sort of getting back into the the time i mean one of my cars is a jensen ff 
it's got anti-lock brakes and four-wheel drive. I mean, it's just, it's impossible to skid that thing. <laughs> Probably not impossible, but I mean, for 1966, 66% of the power goes to the rear wheels, um, 33 to the front, and it has like a progressive locking as it, as it determines that one set of wheels is about to skid. It sends the power to the set of wheels. In 1966, 66, more than 55 years ago, and here we are praising Quattro for something they've just copied, apparently. Right. So exactly, it wasn't as it wasn't as good as the FF. I mean, it was fifty-fifty distribution. At one point, they weren't even going to put a centre diff in it. Anyway, that's another story. I have to watch the nineteen sixty-six episode. It's a it's a corker. Bated breath. Oh, we are here looking for that one. It's the Italian job, uh, sort of, with the Jensen in the mountains. Yeah. Okay, so we've got a bit of Italian job feel going on. Because the guy who, who um, first owned this car drove it to Geneva after a month of having it. And that, to me, that is just, yeah, Geneva. All roads end in Geneva, in my fantasies. <laughs> you don't care where you, you may go anywhere else on the south of France, whatever, the Italian Riviera, but you end up in Geneva at all times. So there we go. You start start in Bristol and make your way down to Geneva. Wherever you want to start. Wherever you want to start. You'll end up in, uh, in, in Geneva. There's a song right there. You can write that and then you... Well, I do... I don't know if I mentioned this, Harry, but I do write songs. Uh, oh. I do, do a bit of music. I'm in, uh, I'm in a band. <clears throat> so uh, I nice. might do. All roads lead to Geneva. Yeah. I can, I'm thinking... I'm already thinking about it. Yeah, yeah. Get the guitar. Let's... Get the guitar. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to write that later. Yeah. Maybe that could be the theme tune to your podcast. Ignition, ignition, all roads lead to Geneva. Yeah. I don't think I need to edit this podcast. This is going to be raw. <laughs> so the last the last question I'd like to ask is, if you have any advice or any sort of, um, I don't want to say mentorship for any budding presenters, what would you, what would you say? What would I say? What would I say? I'd say get out of the business because, uh, you know, there's only so many jobs to go around and, you know, I need a certain number to keep this, uh, keep this whole thing afloat. So go and do something else. Yeah. Off you go. Be prepared to work really hard and to, you know, volunteer to do things, gain some experience, get a good showreel together, you know, film things yourself. Look at presenters that are that you like, that you feel are credible. And while not copying them as such, think about how they express their own personality. I mean, Jeremy Clarkson, obviously, he's, he's, he's sort of, he's just a version of himself. You know, off camera, he's pretty much exactly the same as he is on camera. And, you know, he's not afraid to be himself. Yeah. And I think that's the thing. I mean, I, I know, it, I know it, it's kind of a daunting idea, being yourself. But that is what people want. You know, there's a lot of, there are some presenters who get on by being incredibly bland and having no personality and being quite full of themselves. As you can see, I'm slightly bitter about it. <laughs> but um, it's better. And it's also, I mean, it is also better to have an expertise, to have something that you can do or you know about. So that if somebody's making an item about a topic, then if they want somebody who knows about that topic, then that gives you an advantage over somebody who doesn't know about that topic. Sure. So, I mean, you know, what they, what they always say is, you know, special, being a specialist is, is really good. But, you know, generally, every, why would they hire you for a general job, you know, unless you've got some kind of special thing? I don't know. Also, you know, practice writing, write stuff, because it's also good if you can write your own scripts. 
you can you can research and write your own stuff. I mean, if you want to be a television presenter, I mean, it's a very good idea to be a researcher first because one, you get to learn how TV is made. You get to practice making television and writing scripts and that sort of thing, if you're lucky. And, you know, you get to know lots of people who are producers and directors and you can ask them for advice, you know, and it's always better to be, to be closer to the actual people who make the decisions than just being a, any Tom, Dick or Harry that's sort of sending in an unsolicited request to have a go at doing something. And, and you know, practice, film yourself. Everybody can film things these days. So practice filming yourself, doing stuff, and then look at it and think about it critically. Look, think, do I, do I believe what I'm saying? Does that sound, no, I don't know if I do. Oh, I know what I need to do. Okay, but stop doing that. You know, interview people. Get yourself in an interview situation. Practice that. And interview a mate about something that they know about, and try and you know, and and use that as a way of practicing and and becoming more adept at doing the job. And then, and, you know, make your showreel and send it. I mean, in my day, we it was very my day. <laughs> you had to, you know, you had to get it on VHS and edit it. You get, get an editor to do it for you, and and all that. Now you can just film it on your phone and probably edit it in your phone and attach it on a link to an email. I mean, that's a lot more straightforward than it used to be. So. But you've also got to you've got to get out and meet people and talk to people and get you know and and try and find opportunities for, to have a go at presenting things. It might not necessarily for television, but for just you know I don't know at a show or a, a you know some sort of like the ideal home exhibition or you know whatever there is. Just have a go at, at getting yourself in there, at explaining things to people in a concise and interesting way that sort of thing you know i don't know does any of that sound plausible it all sounds perfect and i will uh i will soon take that and then take every job you have afterwards now you've, you've told me all your secrets <laughs> so brilliant um yeah alex well, th- thank you very much for uh the first it's, you, it's you you're asking advice for i'm only asking for me and anyone else but you know you've started the podcast where well, you, you should get the benefit i mean yeah like i said this this, this, is, this podcast is for people that like i said were like me that might not know what they do. If they don't know what they do, this is pretty much it. To speak to people that profess to know what they're doing. And um, yes, what about a podcast? What what advice would you give to anybody starting a podcast? Just start, if that makes sense. Just start speaking to people and start and start listening to what they have to say. And once they've told you what they have to say, be interested, be curious, be just just listen. And all you need to do is listen, and your life's a lot easier. I was just about to say, Alex, thank you so much for being on the podcast. It's um, it's been a pleasure that you're you're as funny off camera as you are on camera. So I appreciate the view and you giving your time to do this. So, that, so thank you. You're very welcome. Thank you for uh, taking an interest. And don't forget the car years, ITV4 and the ITV Hub, Series 3, out soon, August the 9th. It's one to watch. There we go. Meeting Alex, I wasn't sure what I would get. He wasn't full of himself, as the stereotypical presenter normally is. He has a humility and grace to him. He loves to make people laugh, and i got real sense that he performs in all areas of his life. Whether you like the stuff he has done over the years, you can't deny, after listening to this, that he does it for the audience. He didn't want to confine himself to just cars, showing us that his passion isn't just for vehicles, it is for anything he puts his mind to. Having delved into the minds of some of the most successful brands and learning how they are so dominant, he clearly wants to learn and the curious part of his personality, I feel, truly makes him a great performer. And I want to implement more of that same curiosity in my life. After all, What's the worst that can happen? Like Lewis Warren said, everybody poops. 
And if you listened and loved the John Markar podcast as much as I did, you know that the show must go on. So if you enjoyed what you heard, or you know someone that would make a great guest on the podcast, please let me know. The email address is info at ignitionpod.com. Don't hesitate to contact me with your occupation and how you think you can add to the podcast. The idea is to learn from one another. And remember, you don't have to have a following. You just have to love cars. And that's enough. So, with that being said, I'm Harry, and this is the English Podcast. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed today's or any of our other episodes, please share them with at least three people you know who are in the car trade, love cars, or just find them interesting. If we can get one more person to listen, that's one more person in my mission to help inspire people to do more with their passion for cars.